0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for NOW Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Tyrone Time, a filmmaker who first landed on Canada's top ten with his 2016 short Mariner, which starred Thomas Olajide as a capable but troubled naval cadet. He cast Olajide as another gifted young man suffering pressures both external and internal in his first feature, Learn to Swim which premiered at TIFF last year, also made it onto Canada's Top 10, and starts its theatrical run this Friday in Toronto and Vancouver, with more screens following across the country. It's a powerful, formally complex drama set in Toronto's jazz scene, and it's well worth checking out. Tyrone picked Ghost, Jerry Zucker's 1990 blockbuster about a nice young man who finds himself still walking the streets of New York after he's killed in a botched robbery, determined to reconnect to his grief-stricken girlfriend through a medium who'd really rather be doing something else. It's a weird mix of street-smart comedy, swooning romantic tragedy, and supernatural action movie, and it shouldn't work at all. Except that Zucker had the good fortune to cast Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and an Oscar-winning Whoopi Goldberg, and together, they made a hell of a picture. Oh, and the Righteous Brothers were in there too. This is someone else's movie.
1: I never got to go to the movie theater when I was a kid as much. Like, it was very much a, a special trip to go to the movie theater. And so most of these films I would have just seen on TV, like, you know, just on your regular uh, the box. And it's really interesting now to load them up. You know, they're all been like hdr and stuff like that. And you load them up on HD and you're like, oh, that's what it looks like. So like I saw Hook again in HD probably maybe four or five years ago for the first time. i would only ever remembered it on TV. And it was, it's interesting, yeah, you could definitely see the seams. You're like, okay, this yes. is definitely a complete studio soundstage movie. So I think that's why Titanic always stood out in my mind. Because at the time, you know, it was a, I, I, I saw the, I didn't see the movie. And so I read about Titanic. The teacher had read it to us and I became obsessed with it. And so I went to the library, you know, prior to YouTube and Google, I guess. Went to the library, got every book I could from every library around the city was reading about this my parents wouldn't go see it because of course it's a three-hour movie about like white people on a boat so she's like <laughs> we're not watching that and but they saw how obsessed i was so when it came out on video they went and got the vhs for me but remember mm. it was like two vhs yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I, the first one went in didn't work but i was so anxious to see this thing that i put in the second one i watched it that Friday night, the second half of the movie, right? right? No context to what's happening. Um, and so then my mom went out the next morning, got the got a replacement VHS. And I and then that Saturday afternoon, re-watched the entire thing again. And it was the first time that I saw something that was historical. It felt like a time machine mm-hmm. because everything before that, like Terminator Hook, all this stuff is something is magical. Someone came up with it. But this was like someone had created a time machine and brought me back, and I'm because I spent so much time studying it. It's like the plates are the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. The staircase looks exactly the way it's supposed to be. There's all these pieces, and it was like the first time that I realized that people could actually do that. People could like create a historical context to a film. Um, but yeah, that was that was magical to
0: me. God, James Cameron would be so happy to hear that. I think that's like that's yeah. his that's his true objective is to. Pass is real is to allow people to experience it because that's, you know, all his immersion stuff, all the 3d things that he loves now are about putting people in the world with Titanic. Right. He actually built an existing. Yeah. As you say, he, he built, he recreated an existing history and, you know, plugged fictional characters into it. But the genius of it is that the fictional characters are constantly interacting with real events and people. And so you get, yeah, it's like, it's as though you, it's as though they're the time travelers, right? Cause they're the ones who are sort yeah. of interlopers in this historical event.
1: A hundred percent, you know, and like even the dinner scene, they go and they like meet like you know, Sir Gordon and and, and Lady Macduff and whatever. And, and I'm just like, oh those people. <laughs> I read about them, and everyone else watching this is like, I have no idea who these people are.
0: And <laughs> so uh like to that point, did you see Ghost theatrically? Was it a special event or did you see it on video?
1: <clears throat> My mom. Has two. Like she's gonna kill me if I ever f- fucking said this pop uh, publicly. <laughs> but I guess we're gonna go. My mom has two white boy crushes. One is Garth Brooks, and the other is Patrick Swayze. <laughs> okay. And so anything with Patrick Swayze always was played in the house. And so Ghost is one of those movies that I guess it came out. I mean, it was a big movie. It won you know, Whoopi Goldberg won an Oscar and mm-hmm. that shit. Like it was a big movie, but it came out, and I guess. I guess it would be TBS or whatever. It was like, it was one of those movies that TV just picked up.
0: That's right. It was on cable all the time.
1: It was just always on. And it was one of the few VHSs that my mom bought and would play. It was one of the few. And, and I'd watch it and it was on cable. And if it was on cable, she'd just leave it there. She would just put it on. She'd be cooking and ghosts would be on in the background. And so you would just watch it all the time. And as a kid, you know, I was really young, I guess, you know, I was born in 87. So this movie came out in 1990. Yeah. So it would have been on cable in like 91, 92. I'm like four or five years old watching this movie. And I just remember like being enthralled by it, the romance of it. I mean, even as a little tiny kid, not knowing anything, I definitely had a huge crush on Demi Moore. I, I, the music was beautiful. I think it was Maurice Jarre is is who and it's the last. It's the last composition he did before he passed. Um, That's right. Yeah. Uh, I guess he did like Doctor Shyvalgo and and Lawrence and, uh, of Arabia and Lawrence Arabia. Yeah. And it's just gorgeous soundtrack that has no business being on this film. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um there's music. The music's great. You know, obviously the Righteous Brothers. That song is is a classic. Um, I had action. It was scary. Those little demons coming and taking everybody <laughs> away used to scare the shit out of me as a kid.
0: I've heard that a lot, actually.
1: Um, and you know, I grew up in a very Christian household, so this whole idea of of heaven and 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 the sort of like the Christian imagery that kind of is interspersed into the film. Um just it was just, all, it was just like this perfect storm of things as i as i saw it as a kid and i didn't really think too much of it um you know after my childhood kind of like passed but it was something that i always thought about and if i heard anything that sounded like the soundtrack or i saw anything that was kind of like relatively related to it I always it would come back to me it was like it would just rush back to me and i remember watching it for the first time it was years before i watched it again as an adult um and at this point i was like starting it to film and i put it on and i was like you know because it's one of those things you know it gets spoofed all the time because of the yeah. the pottery and stuff like that yeah yeah and you watch it and you go this is actually pretty good like this is good this is this is hollywood firing at all cylinders but like and there's there's some elements that are problematic but it's a good movie. You know,
0: I have to admit, I hadn't seen it in probably 25 years at this point. Yeah. And then I watched it on, like I have the Blu-ray and I'd never looked at it. It just, it showed up in a box of stuff from Paramount and it's like, oh yeah, ghost. And then I, yeah. it's like, it's a Batman movie. Like it would pass. It's so, it's so weirdly influenced, not, not in any other way than it's just general sense of creepiness underneath a pure story. Like it's a love story. That's, never quite letting you forget how sad it is that this guy's dead, right? Like, there's no hope that he'll come back. There's no sense that everything's going to be made right. And I was really surprised. Like, from the jump, he's dead and he can't have the things he wants. And that's where the Batman stuff kicks in because he's he's suffered this incredible tragedy and he still has to dedicate himself to training and learning to protect his remaining loved ones, (laughs) right? And I just, it's like, Tim Burton could have made this movie. It would have been weirder and sillier, and wouldn't have been yeah. as melancholy. But there's a yeah. real strange link in those in those basic story points. Also, I think the fact that Sam is killed by a mugger, the way Batman's parents were. I think that's the other part of it. In it's an like, alleyway, right? Yeah, in like it feels sketchy, like the jumping off point of a of yeah, a knockoff. A sketchy,
1: like weird New York alleyway with the smoke and everything. It feels, yeah, yeah no. say it, it's it's so oh my like it really is very batman
0: yeah but it's that's the only part of it like the 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 inciting incident and the zeitgeist of it are are tied very hard to comic books except that comic books always have an opportunity for redemption or uh resolution in these stories right because because you can't you're not allowed to let someone die and stay dead and never you know like reconnect and they find ways through Oda May, and, and and structurally there are all these little moments of connection that are totally one-sided like mm-hmm. Sam, is, Sam is, is present and suffering and in a different way than Molly is suffering his loss and it's so it struck me as so weirdly aware of how awful the situation would be like there's never the closest it comes to being fun is he learns to move a coin a little bit and <laughs> And it's still like, you remember it fondly. You feel good about the movie. People went to see it and came out weeping happy. I was at a, I mean, I saw it at a preview screening, I think at the, at the either the Sheraton or the Plaza, one of the underground theaters that are no longer around in Toronto uh, with a full house. And everybody was kind of skeptical and you could feel it's like Patrick Swayze, isn't he the dirty dancing guy? And then the movie's over and they're all like, he tried so hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the ending is just like, I mean, it's, maybe it's cliche, but I mean, it's just so, yeah, it's 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 kind of sad because it's not like he saves her and he you know he gets rid of all the bad guys. And you're like, okay, he gets to be a human again. And he's like, no, oh, I'm still dead. Yeah, gotta go, <laughs> gotta go. Yeah. And yeah. he's like their last say? goodbyes to each other, and you're like, what? No, like <laughs> you guys have to be together. And it's like, no, no, he's he's leaving.
0: But isn't his last line, "I'll see you there" or something? Or I'm waiting for yeah. you. No, it's I'll see you there, and it's just it's so. It's so perfect and knowing, and this is like my thing with all of these movies uh, about death and the afterlife and, and, um, and the possibility, especially if they're dealing with like a movie that effectively, even unconsciously proving a religion, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Ghost is telling us that she will see him again. And I think that's why everybody's so happy. The idea of, of waiting forever for your perfect love. It's Titanic, right? Like it's the end of Titanic. Seven years later, Cameron realized that's the hook. The idea, of yeah. re, the idea of reunion and the bomb that that must give an audience member who's lost somebody to, yeah. to come out of it going, oh, okay, this movie tells me I can hope and that it'll be okay and that maybe, you know, I'll look as good as Patrick Swayze while I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but as a stylized sort of beautiful people version of tragedy, it's weirdly reassuring. And Bruce Joel Rubin, the screenwriter, had been doing stuff like this. Or has been doing stuff like his entire career. My Life is About Dying. Brainstorm is About Life After Death. It's just his primary obsession. And this is the commercial version. This is the blockbuster Best Picture nominee version.
1: Yeah, and it's so it's so weird because like the director is Jerry Zucker, who I believe before that was doing comedies. I think he had done like Airplane or something like that. And so, uh, yeah, you're just kind of like, what's the connector? You know, like, how do they decide on this guy? And, you know, when you read on, like, some of the, you know, like, I I actually had a DVD that had um, their commentary on it. And I remember, like, watching it, listening to that, because I was just like, like, how did you guys even come to this? And just, like, the little tidbits of things of, like, um, but they become so iconic. Like, Demi Moore showing up with her haircut on day one. Right. You know, and them just, you know, I guess, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie. They could have thrown a wig on her if they really didn't want to have her with a pixie cut but they left it there and free to be honest because again because i didn't get to go to the movies a lot demi moore for me when someone says her i think about ghosts i think about her with a pixie cut for a long time i didn't re- even realize that she had longer hair um all yeah. the time it's kind of like how i always thought renee zellweger was british because oh, you know? bridget jones <laughs> yeah i just always thought she was british mm-hmm. and, it and actually- then she would put on she put on other accents and then you find out she's like from like, you know, you know, Shadow Hole, Texas or something. I don't know. She's not from London. <laughs> for sure. yeah. But um, yeah, it's just like all these little tidbits about this film that like, yeah, it's weird because it doesn't, it like it shouldn't be good, has no business being good. It could just easily have just been like a cornball romantic com- like comedy. But yeah. there's something really yeah, there's something really intimate about it. Um, and there's all these pieces to it that technically shouldn't be there. Like, again, like the score and, and the performance, you know, Patrick Swayze is very... He really, like, he really, as an actor, he really buys into that role. He doesn't yeah. play it with any sort of, like, kind of like,
0: I'm a ghost.
1: He's, like, really... He
0: commits. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean about the sadness. It's even, you know, his body, his physical presence, because he was a dancer and he was trained to express like through his, through his shoulders and his chest, you can see how sad he is. He's like, he's, he's kind of cautious in his movements. And even as things get like, as the drama intensifies, he's not playing hero. He's playing scared. He's trying to help and not fail. Like he's terrified of something going wrong for Molly and it makes us relate to him so much more naturally, I think, than any of the roles where he was cast as a guru or a sage or somebody who, you know, like even after Ghost, he would keep getting roles like, what was that one? Three Wishes, where he's the, the guy with the sun tea and the magic dog who, who just right. shows up to help people who are sad. And he's always he's fine in that stuff. And in you know, like Point Break or in, um, What's the other really obvious one that I'm forgetting as I say it, oh, Roadhouse, right? Where he, he yeah. just knows more than everybody. He's the smartest guy in the room, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can't work here because he's someone who has no idea what's happening to him from moment to moment. And yeah. even in like even before he dies, he's clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why he gets killed. All of these things are mysteries that he has to. He, you know, it's the, it's the classic. Um, again, you become your best self to solve the problem, and it. And the thing that Swayze seemingly gets as an actor is that it won't matter, like that he's becoming his best self for no one. No one can appreciate this. It's completely selfless um, Mm -hmm. because he loves someone. And on that level, as like a hopeless romantic performer, I don't know that there was anybody else doing something like that. Like it's so weird and unique as as a performance from him.
1: Yeah, it's something I didn't really appreciate until until yeah later as a yeah. as a filmmaker watching this actor go through it, and you are like, there is so many actors that would have hammed up some of these moments, especially in, like you said in the later parts where he starts to um, learn his power, so to speak, or starts to gain some of these the, his his knowledge of how to navigate this this his ghostness. Um, and even then, there's still a level of earnest to it. There's still, he still doesn't quite know. He's like, even when he, I think, you know, obviously when he's like battling them up on the on the condo and the, and the he's a bit more knowing there. But he, at this point, he's earned it, right? He's earned that laser focus. But the the most assured moment really is when um, that's it's really special is when he lifts the coin. That's the moment that always gets me. There's always just moments in movies that always fuck with me, and that's. Every time he does the, the coin lift and like hands it over to her and Demi Moore is just water working yeah. and like Whoopi Goldberg is all like, see, I told you. And you're just like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> And the soundtrack. It's, the soundtrack. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's pushing all, it's firing in all cylinders. Absolutely. It's trying very, very hard to make us cry, but I think, I honestly, I think there's a silent version of that that works just as well, just from all from the three actors, and the hundred percent and the passion, the investment that we have so far. It is you were saying that it can contain all these elements, and I keep thinking I always forget Whoopi Goldberg is so big, like it's such a big, broad comic role. Of course, it's the role that won the Oscar. It's the one that pops, but she's the one who makes it okay somehow for everything else to be so serious, and. Yeah. Tonally, I don't know how they accomplished that. I and mean, maybe it is just the score working in tandem with her. But right. she has a an absolute lack of gravity, um, which is really fun in mm-hmm. this big, serious movie about a man who's killed and trying to keep his his girlfriend from meeting the same fate. Like, it should be right. ultra serious. And she just keeps showing up and refusing.
1: <laughs> I think, I mean, she, I mean, one of the things that's, that's tough is, that. I mean, she is. When I say problematic, I mean the fact that she is kind of playing the, you know, magical Negroes trope as being like the one person who can hear this ghost and has yep. this ability. Oh, yeah. But I think, I think even, and maybe this is just my projection from watching as a young black man. Like, I just felt like, you know, I grew up in a very religious household. And I'll, I'll give one antidote. Um, my, I, I lived in an apartment for a while that a guy had died in. and it always felt weird in the hallway where he had died and i remember like going out with my buddies that lived in the building before and they're like you know they're like some guy who's a bodybuilder you like died in your apartment and uh you know it's everyone says it's haunted and stuff like that and i'm just you know one of those nights you're out drinking with your buddies and you just like stop you know (laughs) Uh, because you can feel it you feel this weird energy in the hallway and when they were sitting around, my mom, you know, and my mom was really annoying me. I must have been in like high school lately, high school or something like that. And I said to my mom, I, I just to annoy her, because I know she's kind of like that, I was like, you know, the place is haunted, right? You know, some guy died in the hallway. And she's like, Yeah, no. I was like, What do you mean? And she's like, he came to my room a few times. I was like, What? And she's like, Yeah, she he would try to come into my room and she was like, she would say these Bible verses to him and tell him to go home told him to go back home and eventually he stopped coming and i'm sitting there on the couch it's like a saturday afternoon i'm like what the so you're (laughs) out here talking to fucking ghosts and shit like (laughs) i think i thought i was trying to like like scare her and she's out here like you know walking people back to like where they came from you know (laughs) and so having someone like having people like that around in your life it like it made sense to me almost as a kid that otome could speak to this person who would have this ability um or would be the connector it just made a lot of it made a lot of sense um and so her kind of way she handles it of just like it's a thing that's more annoying to her than a thing that she's scared of just like it 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 never threw me off. It wasn't until I got older and you see that trope used in a lot of movies, and you kind of go, "Okay, well, you know, I see what we're doing here." But at the time, watching it with no context, I felt very much like, "Right, yeah." She would, she wouldn't know how to speak to him, but and finds it far more annoying than she does fear.
0: Yeah, I love the New York of it all. It's like just one more goddamn thing for her. <laughs> exactly. She just wants a bagel. She wants to go home. This is why is this happening to her? And, and and she makes it safe, right? Like she makes Goldberg makes the part work by showing us that she's kind of a fraud until she realizes she can do it for real. So right. she sort of leans into the stereotype that already exists in order to immediately subvert it with this other performance that isn't. Right. Like, she's she's giving us her impression of the stereotype. Oda May is not like Goldberg is showing right. us Oda May doing that. And then Takes it all away to have real wonder and then immediately go right back to because that's what you would do. Like, if we found yeah. out that the afterlife was real on Tuesday, by Thursday, you'd still have to go back to work.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's one of my favorite, I mean, the movie's filled with tons of favorite moments, but one of my favorite moments, of course, is her in a room filled with all the apparitions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they're all trying to talk to her and she's trying to like settle, you know what I mean? Like, she's just trying to get this business together. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she has a schedule. <laughs> or she had one before they all got there.
1: Yeah, because for her, she's like, okay, business is picked up. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: It's annoying. I have to listen to all these ghosts, you know. But it's just like, yeah, there's there's so many. Yeah, I think that's part of that's part of the reason why. I mean the, the film does speak to my childhood, but I think part of the reason why it also speaks to me as an adult and as a filmmaker is because making films or like seeing films, you see they could fail at so many different points. There's so many things that could absolutely tank a movie or take a movie or take a, a script that had potential and turn it into, into coal. Sure. And so for this film, there's so many things that just need to work in order for it to work. And they have no business working and they could have easily had fell apart. Um, I'm trying to even imagine what someone would have thought reading that script for the first time and thinking, cause I'm not really sure. The one thing I never understood was what the driver was for Paramount or for anyone to make that film, whether they, they read it and just, you know, it's 1990. So, I mean, you know, I'm sure cocaine and other things probably spoke to that, but. Um, always sure. cocaine. It's always cocaine. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the person who read that script the executives that read that script and thought on any level that they can make money from it, that it has any merit. Because from, from knowing nothing about the movie and just like hearing the script, that the guy, there's a film, the guy dies relatively in the beginning and then spends the rest of the movie trying to like figure out his murder and then prevent his girlfriend from falling in love with the guy who murdered him. And then he just like goes to heaven. And you're just like, like, if you read that, just yeah. ab- like on your own, you'd be like, this is what yeah. What are you talking about?
0: Well, it's funny because two years earlier, there had been a remake of DOA with Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you've ever seen it. Disney produced it through Touchstone or Hollywood. It's right. great. Like it is a right. ne- it's a neo-noir uh, about a man who is poisoned. Uh, has mm-hmm. 24 hours to live, basically. In the original, like it's a, it, was from, it was a black and white pulp thing from the 1950s with Edmund O'Brien. He's just an ordinary person. I think he's an insurance salesman in the original. Goes to the hospital, finds out he's dying. He has 24 hours to live. Somebody's poisoned him. he has no idea why. And so he tries to solve his own murder. Mm-hmm. The, the, the 80s version is like, it's really hyped. Um, it was made by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, who made super Mario brothers later and kind of torpedoed their careers. But this was like their calling card to British music video whizzes who like they saturate the thing and it's raining all the time and all the culture. And there's this great Chaz Jankel score, the sort of wailing guitar sort of thing. It's all it's, and it's similarly, it's really sad, but it's propulsive. And it's sort of the same thing. It's about a guy solving his own murder. Um, And in the end, ultimately walking into the light, like it's, there are beats that you could describe while pitching ghost that people would tweak to and go, Oh, that, that didn't make money. It's like, yeah, but this is the better version. This is the, this is the movie star version and a big studio makes it instead of a, 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 a shingle at Disney. So we'd have more control. And this guy made airplane and top secret and ruthless people. And they all made millions of dollars, not top secret so much, but everybody loves it anyway. And there's a way, like they could argue their way into making it. And then, Do do you know who was originally considered for this? Because it's amazing.
1: For the roles in the movie.
0: Yeah. So Sam was offered to Harrison Ford, Michael J. Fox, Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Kline, Alec Baldwin, Tom Cruise, and Paul Hogan right off Crocodile Dundee. And nobody bit. Bruce Willis turned it down Uh, while Moore was cast, apparently, and said he couldn't see it working. And... Um, that's amazing. And then for Molly, they were looking at Michelle Pfeiffer, Molly Ringwald, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts, Nicole Kidman. And for Oda May, they auditioned Tina Turner and Oprah Winfrey, which either of those could maybe have worked, but not quite as fluidly, I don't think. Like Oprah has more presence. Yeah. Goldberg's lack of presence really works for the character. Like she's not intimidating Oprah would
1: have had, would have like would have probably sat into the heaviness of the, of the screenplay.
0: I think so, yeah. And Tina Turner yeah. might have even been too lively.
1: Yeah, because um, uh, the only th- only reference I have for Tina Turner is like is, is uh, like Thunderdome. Back- back- yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, she would have been great. She, but she's always having a lot of fun. Like, I don't know that she can turn herself off enough to sell the heavier moments. At but, least not at that point in time. She probably do anything she wants. I'm being silly, but but Goldberg, like, it's the it's that incredible alchemy of finding three actors who like Swayze brings so much in terms of possible expectations from all the other stuff he's done. And then to have him not do any of those things and instead be small and quiet, that's a shocking turn. Um, yeah. Like, I guess Tom Hanks could probably have pulled it off. I mean, who am I kidding? He can, yeah, Tom I Hanks mean, right to, after Bake could have done it.
1: Yeah. Tom probably the only, the only people from that list that actually I I would have maybe there's probably Tom and maybe Bacon. Yeah. I think maybe, I think maybe those guys, I think maybe those guys could have. I mean, Bacon was really young back then, so I don't know if he, if he, but yeah, I think only those two guys can I actually see possibly being able to like carry that that fine line. From Demi was just Demi just had enough of the right things. I feel like she was very she could be very very vulnerable, mm-hmm. but there was something about her that was always. What's the word I'm looking for? There was always something, not serious. There was always something about her that was very...
0: The hardness, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there was a hardness to it where you really... She never gives in to the idea of it. Like, no matter what she sees, no matter what comes up, there's always this doubt. And it's not this, like... And, you know, sometimes you watch somebody doubting something and you're like... How do you not believe? You know what I mean? Like, you actually are with her. You're like, I can absolutely see why you wouldn't buy into any of this, right? It's absolutely... All of it is wild, yeah. right? I think one of the most interesting... One of the most interesting moments in the, in the film is... I didn't think about this when I was a kid, but the moment where Sam does... The, where they dance. Him and, and Demi dance for the first time. And... If you, you know, the filmmakers do this really beautiful thing. So the film is really beautifully shot. Again, mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be, but the film is really beautifully shot. And there's this great moment where he takes over Otome's body and then she reaches her hand over and we come off the hands to Demi. And then we come around Demi and it's Patrick Swayze there. Yeah. And they start dancing and they have this super intimate romantic dance. But the the subtext to that is that she's dancing with Otome the whole time. It's it's her and and, and whoopi Goldberg, really. Yeah. Like if you walked into the room, it's her and Whoopi Goldberg passionately dancing with each other.
0: Yeah. Ebert was really annoyed that it that it wasn't that. Like I remember that really, <laughs> really seriously from his review. It's like his concern was that it was the studio backing away because they didn't want to show two women together. Right. But like it plays in the moment so well with Swayze there because it's what you were saying about how she's against it and resisting it the whole time. And it's because she wants to believe it's true, right? Like there's some part of her that's telling her that her grief is, is blinding her to the possibilities and it's in her performance. It's never articulated in the script, but more like from the beginning, the first encounter with, with Odame, she is scared of the, of it possibly being real. And that makes her angry and defensive and like, it's an organic. I don't know that she's ever been quite that good in anything else. And it's weird. I think that the haircut even helps because it makes her look like a survivor. It makes her look like someone who's just like taken away parts of herself in order to get through whatever this is, even though she has the cut for the whole movie before Sam dies. Um, There's all these little tells built into her performance and built into the way that she's framed against people that make her smaller and more vulnerable, even though Demi Moore could put someone through a wall if she wanted to. yeah. And when that, when we get her, when we get Molly and Sam reunited, we're seeing her version of it because she's allowing it. Like she's finally, Molly is letting herself feel this and it's devastating. It shouldn't be. But I think with, with Oda Mae there, if she's got Whoopi Goldberg on screen, Moore can't get us there in the same way.
1: Yeah, and I just honestly, and to be honest, I felt like it would be kind of comical in some ways. Cause yeah. like that's the subtext. The subtext to it is funny when you think about it after the fact. You're like, oh right, she's just groping Whoopi Goldberg this whole time. But yeah. in the moment, I don't wanna be there. I wanna like you said, I wanna be with Demi. I wanna I wanna feel I wanna give in too, right? Because it's you know, if you're a skeptic watching the film the whole time, you're like, this is so foolish. But yeah. that's the moment where you kind of, like, let go with her. And you're like, oh, wouldn't that be nice, you know? Wouldn't that be nice to dance with your lover one more time, you know, to get, you know? And it's such a, but I I did, you know, I I, I hear one thought about it. But I thought the way that they went into it was really, because you see, obviously, it's it's Whoopi. And just the way that it pans from her to, and then comes back to him in that one in that one shot, it just like makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And it becomes a sort of like dream sequence inside of this moment, which they don't do a lot. Right. Cause it's already pretty much, a, it's already a paranormal movie. So you don't really want to paint a bunch of dream sequences inside of that.
0: Yeah. But it is a way and, of saying this is subjective, you know, this yeah. is her perspective. Just go with it.
1: Yeah. And I, I, it's one of the, it's a very tender moment and it, it's one of my, yeah, it's one of the, the, my favorite moments, and, I, and when I think about it, it definitely informs a lot of how I kind of move the camera and move things in in my in my films of, of doing these reveals and having um, people appear inside of shots and and re and disappear inside of shots and these sort of transitions that I like to build. There's a yeah. lot of that that happens in 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 Ghost as they transition from from scene to scene, bringing you from Swayze sort of like ghost realm into um the physical world that we inhabit
0: yeah i felt the seamlessness to it yeah i felt like the camera moves differently when it's with sam just because it can float because he's not bound exactly by gravity although you know it's the it's the standard line i think dozens of different Authors and, and filmmakers have tried to tackle why do ghosts have to stand up on floors and you know, behave like they're people. And the, the argument right. is, I think David Kep when he made Ghost Town, just said, look, they still think they're people. It's like you haven't learned right. what's possible. So you're going to do all the stuff you remember. It's why they breathe. It's because, you know, obviously it's because actors have to do this stuff. Right. But his his argument was until you know you're not human anymore, you're going to be the person you think you are. And right. it's a good excuse, but there's there are these little touches, the way the camera glides when it's with Sam versus the more conventional setups in New York locations with with mm-hmm. Molly and Oda May that just differentiated just enough. And I want to say, although maybe it's um, just a, a, a tweak of all the different remixes they've done with the soundtrack over the decades to bring it up to mm-hmm. speed with whatever format you're watching it on, it felt right. to me like the world sounds more hollow in Sam's version of events than when we're with Molly and it's maybe it's just more wild sound that got mixed into the track somehow.
1: Yeah, because but- it has that like weird 90s kind of like hollow sound to it, most of the film. And then like you listen to the new remixed version and they yeah, kind of yeah. played around with it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah you, you can, can never tell see- anymore. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I, I definitely see where they start. As Sam becomes more ghostly, they, the cuts become more ghostly. Like, yeah. I, I, like I feel like in the beginning of the film, there's a lot of, we get to see Sam enter spaces, and we get to be with Sam when he arrives, or when he departs. Mm-hmm. And then um, what stands out to me is, is when he starts haunting the guys, when he starts haunting um, Willie and Carl, the, the most ghostly moment is when he shows up in the apartment when they're chasing may and then he's just in the apartment. And it's, it's such a, it's, it's a moment because it's like, the first time that we don't really like arrive with yeah. Sam, or depart with Sam he's already there and you're just like oh shit like he's ghost ghosting now yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just already in places um and I think yeah I think the psychology to that is like really really interesting of just like yeah he's yeah now he he's learning he's lear- understanding more about kind of like speaking to what you're saying about how he how his ghostness works he doesn't yeah. have to necessarily arrive at anywhere he can just be wherever he wants to be
0: It's something that Shyamalan used in The Sixth Sense, which is like the ghost movie that bookends the decade. Like you've got Ghost in 1990 and The Sixth Sense in 99. (laughs) It's some amazing weird alchemy about the audience already kind of knowing what's going on and having, watching the characters catch up that makes Ghost so satisfying. And compared to the, to the other bookend, it's only version of a happy ending is still that they're going to be parted for decades Although maybe right. time has no meaning for Sam, and we have no idea what heaven really looks like or where he's going, but the idea that there is some unknowable distance that he can traverse in a moment if he needs to—that he can be summoned again—it goes back to the Batman thing, right? Like he's there; he's a hero. He's there when they yeah. need him, but he doesn't believe that about himself. And so, 100%. Swayze's performance just becomes richer every time.
1: Yeah, I I also feel one of the things that also stands out to me that I didn't really pick up again because. Most of the times when I would see it as a kid, you'd always pick up the movie at a certain place. Mm. It feels like that whenever you watch movies, right? You always pick them up. It's like if you watch Shawshank Redemption, you don't remember the trial or him showing up to prison. You always pick up, you know, at some point during, you know, something between him and the warden or something like that, right? right. Yeah, it's whatever like you For- tune into. Yeah, or like Forrest Gump. It's always when he's like running away from the kids on the bike. You don't remember the whole him mom trying to get him into school and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um and with ghost it they they set up Patrick Swayze as already being a little bit anxious he has this whole thing about the plane crash on tv which i'm i i love flying but i am also like you know i have my you know i have a some people have public speaking fears i have height fears okay so um it's a bit different but uh they set up these that whole tidbit with him being like worried about this plane crash and you already and him having this the nightmare and so you already have this like anxiety that he has he already has this a little bit of fear that happens and then the worst fucking thing happens to him and just like feeds into that so he they do such a great job of setting him up as already being scared and then he dies and then he's scared that he's dead he's completely petrified by the idea of it for like a good 15 minutes of the film. Yeah. It's a horror um, movie. Yeah. So it's not like, it, it, it's not like he becomes a ghost and he's like, Oh, well, get guess I'm ghosting now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all those eighties comedies where, you know, people immediately go to the women's locker because that's what they can do as ghosts. Right. Those people don't deserve to go to heaven and save their <laughs> friends. This is the there's best this case. a movie
1: that came out on Netflix. I'm uh, not to like trash. The, the, I'm sure the executive of that movie's listening and will not hire me now. But there's like a movie on Netflix that um, came out a few years ago where like I will kind of remember the name of it, but it was like the guy finds a time machine. There's like a photo booth time oh, machine. Oh, that one. About. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he spends the rest of the movie trying to like pick up this girl.
0: Yeah. And, reverse like, yeah. gaslighting the woman he loves.
1: Yeah. And you're like, dude, you have a time machine.
0: <laughs> you can do anything. I like the idea of petty time travel. Like I, just to just to mess, <laughs> screw up a couple of people's lives, mess with something, get some stock options. It's you know, we all want to believe we'd kill baby Hitler, but probably you do three or four no. runs for yourself first.
1: No, I mean. I, I mean, I always come at everything with a very black lens, right? Just because of who I am. And so, like, killing baby Hitler is probably not in the best of interest for me. I know the world would probably like it. But my my Jamaican black self showing up in Austria in 1909 or whatever year he was born is probably not the greatest idea. Um, sure. <laughs> That's someone else's journey.
0: <laughs> no, my like my background is Eastern European Jewish, so I'm always going to go to kill baby Hitler. But I get your point. I take your point. I would also have to pick my window very carefully. I'd
1: tip someone off, maybe. I mean, yeah. like maybe you should. There's some guy you should probably check out. Maybe, <laughs> but me myself, probably not the best idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, petty time travel. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it is the the thing of like yeah, you become a ghost, and it's like what is the yeah, you always think about that, right? Because my mind is always that dark, right? Like I watched yesterday um yeah. the Beatles movie. And um, you know, he's so earnest in the in the film about the idea that and I'm just like, man, I I wish I would have leaned the hell into that if I if everyone thought I made um Beatles records, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also really liked. It. I like the fact that he also had to, um, on the off tangent, that he actually get that you remember all these Beatles songs.
0: Yeah, um, that's cute that he, that there but, are a couple he's just not that familiar with. I did like yeah, that. Yeah, I, really,
1: I, I like that aspect because, like, we all think we'd be able to like really jump with it, but it's like, eh, how much of it do you remember? Yeah. But there is that. Um, yeah, there is that with going back to Sam, the fact that for the first part of his journey into into ghosthood if we want to call it that. Um he is petrified and scared and lost. And all he wants to do is is have contact with Molly just to like be like I like this is what happened. Like you know and he can't he just cannot connect to her in any in any way physically spiritually like he just cannot connect to her. Yeah. Um, It's
0: such a simple device, right? Like it's the most simple and coherent motivation for a hero. Yeah. And to take that away from someone, and for for someone as expressive as Swayze turned out to be to play that, right? Like the yearning and longing in his eyes and just the way he leans towards her physically. And he's like, he's drawn to her physically attracted, but also like you can kind of feel his heart pulling him. Like he's moving from the chest in a way.
1: Absolutely. And it's such a, it's such a interesting thing because, of course, you know, looking back at his filmography, again, like you know, for me as a kid watching this, this is my first time meeting a lot of these people. Of course, my mom had the the crush, so I did see Dirty Dancing sure. more times than a, than a person should. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I, I I wasn't able to add that sort of this person couldn't do that. But then, like going back and looking at you know the Roadhouses and things like that, you kind of go. Yeah, I can see how people would not have had any expectation of this person being able to pull that performance out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw, I guess, in order, like Outsiders, Red Dawn, Dirty Dancing, that terrible Italian Steel Dawn, or uh, they shot it in Italy or Spain. It was an <laughs> right, yeah. international post-apocalyptic thing where he has a headband and punches people. And it's just like nothing... Hints at that, like Dirty Dancing is there's there are glimmers. Like Johnny is self aware enough that right. you can see Patrick Swayze being charming and clever he still about kind of it.
1: Know it all in Dirty Dancing. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And to, to see him just show up in this where I didn't know why they cast him, like from the trailer and from the from the pitch of the film until I sat down and watched the movie. It's like, oh no, he's perfect for this. And then by the end of it, you can't imagine anyone else playing the role.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's quite it's quite. It's quite incredible. And just like the idea of like what it was that maybe Jerry Zucker and, and the studio saw in him at the time. Um, I don't know if he ever read with Demi. I, and they never mentioned whether or not he ever read with her if they had if they had even tried the two of them in the room. Um, or if they just kind of cast them and hoped it would work in yeah. rehearsals or something yeah, like that. I know. Um because their chemistry is, is incredible, even though they don't um they don't. They they share a lot of scenes together, but they really don't.
0: Yeah, no, it's amazing, right? Like they have fifteen minutes at most to set up the entire relationship. Yeah, uh, and it's mostly her being annoyed with him that he he keeps saying ditto, right? Like that. That's her yeah. note. <laughs> uh, other than the pottery sequence, where you know you see that they love each other, but you also see her frustration with him and the way they're kind of they're sort of having that argument when he's when they're interrupted when he dies and it gives us again it it builds into Molly's anger and and she's mad that they were fighting when he died and that's again it's there it's on the page but it's never articulated it's just something that she carries and plays for the rest of the picture and it's like every choice makes it better all these all these little tweaks to to the responses and from scene to scene, and and the way the characters are set up to interact, it's like going back over it. It's so it feels so much more unique than it probably is. You uh-huh. know, for a studio picture in in 1990, where people were taking risks and making huge summer movies out of like these really weird, half half real, half um, supernatural concepts, and somehow finding. Like there there is no genre where this fits. You, you can't like you can't yeah. say this is like something else. You like there's DOA for the thriller stuff, but it's not really a thriller. There's the ghost and Mrs. Muir, and there's all these other supernatural romances for the supernatural romance stuff, but it's too grounded to fit there, right? Like it's yeah. <laughs> it just it's it it's was own grimy. Thing. It yeah. It is
1: grimy. And maybe that's but part of it is the New York of it. The fact that it's shot in like you know the '90s New York, and there is a bit of there's a grime to it, but like Willie's grimy, Sam's character is is grime. Who, who we which who we haven't even given props to um, Carl. Uh, oh, Tony Goldwyn. Yeah, yeah, Tony Goldwyn, um, who plays such a great villain. Such such a great villain. Yeah. Um,
0: no, it's good. He has he's he's able to play reasonable. Like even when he's trying to kill someone, he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons, which is the greatest kind of villain, right? Like somebody who doesn't see himself as the bad guy who's acknowledging, like he's compromising himself, but only to get the deal done. Like it's not, he's going to go back to being a good guy. You can feel it, right? right? Like he's still trying to court Molly, except that he's not really, he's just trying to find out what she knows. But all the versions of himself that he presents are, they feel legitimate in the moment, which is really great for Goldwyn because he is just so, he's so good at not giving the game away. Like he's just so he's he's smarmy, but he's he's smarmy in a way that plays into just a guy who's trying too hard. You you can believe yeah. that he's just a little bit much, but he can be friends with Sam and Molly. He's a good guy. He's not gonna put the moves on her, he's a decent person. Oh no, actually he's he's <laughs> the worst. Like he is late capitalism on two legs, but but he sells it.
1: He does, and like, you know, I I feel, you know, I always read it, even as a kid, of of a guy who just, I mean, the the whole thing is that his intention wasn't to kill Sam, right? His intention was just to get the numbers so he could steal this money. Right. Um, But then, you know, Sam dies, and of course, he's kind of, I mean, for us, we're looking at it from the outside, and we're going, you snarmy bastard. (laughs) But for him, who's in that position, like you said of of just being a cat like he it's just opportunity yeah he's just like yeah sam's dead so his girlfriend is around we always were close like why not you know like he's just like moving on he doesn't even have this whole perception of like oh there's ghosts and stuff like that and maybe they're gonna get together you know we're thinking that right but he's just all moving forward but like always loved how fucking scared he is in scenes. Like, um, when Sam is really getting to him and he's in the kitchen, he's sweating his ass off and he has a knife and he has no idea where Sam is and he's just, the camera's just kind of like roving. And I always, I always loved that about, about the fact that he just doesn't quite understand what's happening, right? He's not too ahead of it as a villain, right? Like, he knows, he has he's part of the physical world so he has an ability that sam doesn't and he keeps going to that right Mm -hmm. he keeps going like to that without even knowing it but um yeah i just always uh, like when he's at the computer screen he's losing his shit i don't know there's just something about like the way that he plays that character that duality of his character that i always just enjoy as a watching him as a villain
0: yeah. I think it's the panic. You never see villains panic. They're always so cool yeah. and collected and everybody, you know, they're all Alan Rickman and Hard, or they all think they are. So they're right. presenting this very calm center while the mayhem is happening. And he is just going to piss himself two frames yeah. later. Like he is, he is not prepared for anything that happens and he's, <laughs> he's good at improvising, but he's not that good. Right. Like right. you can see it in the final scenes where he tries to negotiate his way out of problems and right. just, doesn't have a step three. You can just right. like he's talking to buy himself time. And yeah. and then of course is rewarded with what I remember like a room full of people going, ah, when he finally gets impaled on a glass shard. Right. That is a violent, brutal death.
1: It is pretty it's I mean both I mean all other than Patrick Swayze's death, both deaths are pretty brutal. Like the car
0: oh the car yeah, that's hit true. On Willie.
1: The car yeah. hit on Willie was pretty rough. Um and then, yeah the, yeah, the impalement is just like, again, it's one of those things that just could have, totally could have just knocked the audience out of this film. Um, but at this point, you're kind of like, no, yeah, you deserved it. you know. Yeah, and it's um, so
0: sudden and violent. And it really does, like, it just feels like a stunt that went wrong somehow. Something about the frame right? feels unpredictable. And I, I don't know how they did it. I guess it's just where they choose to cut into the shot. But it feels right. like an accident. I mean it is in in terms of the story it's supposed to be but it feels like we weren't supposed to see it this way (laughs) and the whole room recoils and then you have this moment of shock where he's separated and then he gets dragged to hell by the ghost demons
1: it reminds me of a few years ago uh, one of the Spider-Man movies one of the um, not the Tom Holland one but uh, the previous Andrew Garfield one and if anyone's watching this or listening to this that hasn't seen those Spider-Mans I'm sorry spoiler alert but um, when Gwen Stacy, uh, yeah, dies, and she's falling down that tunnel, and he throws the spider web, and she has this violent jerk of her body. I remember sitting in the theaters, and like the kids in the room started bawling, just because it was so. I remember like sitting there with my friend. I'm like, Jesus, this is violent for
0: a spider movie. Yeah, yeah, I remember. It's uh, and it's also because it's Emma Stone, right? Who is, who is like a a golden retriever for the entire Spider-Man series. She's just the life and the light in those movies. And even though like, if you read the comics and you know, like, you know what happened to Gwen Stacy and also the way they teased it with Mary Jane in the, in the, the older movies with Tobey Maguire, uh, that's how she dies. Just not in this circumstance and then realizing, Oh shit, she's wearing the silver trench coat. This is it. They're going to kill her. And it's still horrible. Because yeah, yeah, you have to, we have to feel it the way Peter feels it. It's like yeah. emotional and it's just, filmmaking.
1: And it just but it's just so like just the cracking of her whole body in that moment. It just like something that like lingers in my mind. I'm just like, Jesus, that was a, <laughs> oh, it's a hard lot we to death in this film. Yeah. yeah. I think it Especially depends. In, on... in Marvel movies where I don't feel like they really do. I, I guess your expectation of death in Marvel movies tends to be um I guess much more uh, subdued uh, yeah, than they are. Softer, in other movies. somehow. Yeah, they're softer. So that was a really out of out of the blue sort of like hard death. Where you're like, oh no, that's that's yeah, that's how that's how it would happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder. It, maybe it depends on how close you're sitting to the subwoofer. Yeah, and <laughs> just feel it in your chest.
1: <laughs> but I just remember it was, it was packed cinema, and um, it's a couple kids, and he just immediately, like, it wasn't even. You know he hadn't peter hadn't even come down and, like cradle her yet and they were they were already bawling just the Aww. sound of her back cracking like that they just like they knew that something inside of them was just like oh no <laughs> like she's she's definitely she definitely died right there and mm. i think that's kind of what that ghost moment is like when you're watching it and he just gets a you're just like oh yeah he's 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 dead dead that's permanent
0: yeah yeah it's it's, i mean it is like it's the emotional it's maybe not the emotional climax of the story that that would be sam and molly reunited but it's the emotional crescendo because it's where the plot's been going like that's our that's that's the end of this that is the big finish
1: face again when he comes up that sort of
0: he's angry at
1: carl but he also knows what's about to happen. Yeah. And there's this sort of like sadness on his face. Like, man, like it really, it didn't have to be like this. Yeah.
0: He's taking no pleasure in it. And again, yeah. that's a choice, right? Cause that's not where most action movies end. You know, there was that, uh, it was Roland Emmerich. I think who said that when they were making uh independence day at the very end, when they blow up the ship, um, yeah. they needed an insert shot of an alien looking up because it couldn't be a faceless explosion. Somebody had to get it. They needed some character to go, uh, uh, and realize that the jig was up. So the audience could applaud. Right. And there would be a place in ghost for this to happen. You know, like there's a, there's an action beat of this where the, if it's Tom Cruise, he said, I told you so, or something, right? Like some little heroic flourish and Swayze just doesn't do it. He just refuses as an yeah. actor to take any pleasure in this.
1: Yeah. He's so mournful over Carl dying. Cause the rest of us are like, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. And then it cuts to Patrick and he's like, man, yeah. he's like, they're like, it's 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 only gonna get worse from here, man. And I it sucks that it's gonna get worse, you know? And yeah. Carl is all like, Oh shit, like you're here and he doesn't know what's happening. And before he knows it, of course, you know, the scary shadow things, which I'm not it would have been funny if if they came out and they were like the shadow things were supposed to be comical because they were scary as shit as a kid and you said you like you mentioned that like people thought they were just so scary these face I think that part of it because they were just faceless yeah. and then the way they would come and they'd grab you pull you away and then they would become the shadows of the floor it was really 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 smart they just become whatever the shadow was in the ground that was originally there
0: yeah. It's a simple logical effect, right? Like it's disturbing how easy that is to sell. It's like the the guys walking into the players, walking out of the cornfield in field of dreams. It's just a really subtle dissolve thing that yeah. feels natural, even though it's completely supernatural. And so I think on the back of your mind, you're just thinking about, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be very careful walking home, whatever, yeah. whatever else is happening in this movie. I'm yeah. learning a valuable lesson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cause you're just wondering. You're like, and then up until that point, everyone's been getting the. No, I guess the one person gets the um, the light the uh, the light treatment early in the movie. They do establish the light treatment early in the movie. I think it's in the hospital. If I'm yes. correct, yeah,
0: yeah, Someone um, witnesses it afterwards.
1: Yeah, someone gets the light treatment, but I mean, everyone else is getting the shadows. So you're like, where where do I? <laughs> where yeah. do I fall in and that's and that's what I mean but like even like going back to like the the, the allegories and, and connections to Christianity and stuff like that you know there's obviously the, the the ornament or the large figure that they are trying to pull into their house and then you know there's a whole thing where you know he kicks you know she kicks it and comes back and they grab it and there's that moment of like oh someone could fall off this building and then it appears in a nightmare. There's a flash of it falling and crashing to the ground. Um, and there's all this talk of 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 this. And then, yeah, it's, now you, you're sitting there, even as a kid, and you're thinking about morality now. you like, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Am I getting the shadows? Am I getting the light? Like, what, yeah. what, like if someone came and popped me off, you know, behind my building here, um, where would where would I go? Where would I fall into this whole thing? So now you're having this whole like Christian morality conversation with you after you just watch this <laughs> Hollywood romance. <laughs> yeah.
0: But that's what makes it relatable. It's ingenious, right? Because even though it's telling an impossible story, it's couching it in thoughts and decisions that we've, would make like it's a it's a relatable supernatural story there's no machine there's no portal it's just people dealing with stuff as it happens to them and it just stays on the ground it's 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 kind of I mean again I just like I had not given it enough credit clearly uh for what it does accomplish
1: yeah it's because it just really when I watch it now I seeing it as a filmmaker it is such a a miracle that it exists the way in in the way that it does because it really 'Cause it really is one of those movies that really does get like, you know, kinda like going harkening back to something like Titanic that's so easy to spoof because it is so big and so in so many places. Um yeah. and does have some cornball elements. I mean, the sex scene in Ghost is is I don't know if that's a sex scene, I just like it's just them feeling up each other in the moonlight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> three very long minutes. (laughs) I mean, that's what you could do with PG-13 at the time. It was a a more permissive era uh, for groping, for just straight-up groping. But it's also because they're such physical performers, right? Like, they don't have time together otherwise, and they have to sell that. And so, it is silly, and immediately the Naked Gun movies, which David Zucker directed, right? Like, Jerry's brother, immediately parody it. And... Mm -hmm. It somehow felt good-natured and silly instead of mean-spirited. Yeah, Because it's just so goofy to begin with that, I, as you say, it's just teetering on the edge of parody in, in its original form. So to have Leslie Nielsen do it is just, yeah, this is where it was always going, but you cared about it. You, It mattered the first time.
1: Because that's the other thing I didn't realize because as a kid, it was how big this movie was. You know, I didn't... I didn't I, oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't watch the Oscars until a bit later in life I didn't really understand it again you know I was like 5 or 6 it wasn't until I was probably closer to 9 and 10 that I started understanding what the Oscars were and people got awards for things and um but I wasn't you know I wasn't like picking up the, the trades and being like oh what was the box office on this yeah, yeah.
0: no it made um, half it was, a billion dollars it was the biggest movie of 1990 of movie. yeah it made a shit ton of money
1: it was it was huge it was what the avengers was that year yeah you know and so it was a movie that like everyone saw that everyone, or at least people knew about, but mm-hmm. talked about it. You know, they probably did the late night circuit. And, oh yeah. And all of that stuff, especially going into the award season and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it felt it's, it's interesting. the things that you see, because it feels like a secret because it wasn't a cool movie, right? It wasn't, you know, I saw, I remember watching juice or watching Terminator. And then going out and all your friends are pretending that they're Terminators, right? And everyone's yeah. like talking about that movie and you're not allowed to watch it, but then you to go to someone's house, someone has a tape and you put it on and, you know. So it wasn't part of the. It wasn't like kids were outside being like, man, did you catch Patrick Swayze and Ghost? It was like one of those things, right? Yeah. So it felt, it felt like a secret for me for a long time because I was just like, who else knows about this movie? Apparently my mom and me and like some other white lady that, likes patrick's raising you know yeah yeah um but then looking back or as time goes on you realize holy this was like a huge this was like a moment this was a big 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 movie um that didn't feel that way it didn't feel big to me viewing it um as a kid
0: yeah i don't know that it was ever a pop culture sensation it just never went away like it just didn't quit and right you know, five Oscar nominations. It won two and uh, won best screenplay and, and best supporting actress for Goldberg, but it was up for best picture and best score and best editing. And like those, those were, I think I remember like this is 1990. This is the year that Dances with Wolves wins and Goodfellas doesn't. And nobody talked right. about Ghost in comparison. Like it was the film that got the popular recognition. So the right. nominations were supposed to be the rewards, just like, well, there's always a really, really big, successful film that works its way in. But then you look back on it and it's like, it's almost classically formal in, in its construction. It's like, if there is a golden age version of the 90s, this is part of it. Because it's just a well-executed studio picture.
1: A hundred percent. I think it's, it's. I think, I know it sounds kind of weird, but it, 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 in some ways, but I think when you think about your life as a director, or you think about working on a studio movie, that is what you imagine. Is it like making a good movie that people enjoy that causes some sort of thought or conversation that has great performances that has some scope? You know, that is what you think. You know, I think today when you think of a studio movie, it's a like we're either we're blowing up New York or nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when I thought about being a, like when I thought about someone talking about being a studio director, that's the kind of movie that comes to my mind. Of what you'd want to be, what you'd want to be working on, and of course, like you know, Goodfellas, of course, would be absolutely outstanding, um, <laughs> which is sure. another one of my favorite movies. But another movie again that was like, Goodfellas is another movie again that I never saw in theaters. It was a movie that was on TV all the time, and you always watched it when it was on. You weren't allowed to really watch it, so you'd always play it low and sit closer to the television. You know, um, yes, yeah,
0: contraband.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, and luckily by time Goodfellas is that we I I you know, you watch in the living room, we had the remote. I mean, God forbid in my room I had to the <laughs> parents, uh, I had turnies. What do you call those? The dial TV? Oh the dials, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Like you had to make you had to commit to whatever the hell you were watching back then. Um <laughs> but it was just like, you know. Um But it was another film, you know, Shawshank Redemption was like that. Another film that, you know, looking back, you know, felt like a secret because no one else talked about it. You didn't know, you didn't really know anybody else in the school year that had seen it or, you know, it was a conversation piece like Hook Mm -hmm. was or Honey, I Blew Up the Kids or something like that. But it felt like a secret and then you, like, you grow up a little bit and you're like, no, everyone knows what this movie is. Everyone was watching it when it was on too and it was like, it was a thing and, and that's with ghost. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really well done and, and all the pieces to it, there's shots from it that are amazing. The mirror shot is incredible um, when they're moving um, the transitions that they do. Um, yeah. It it's, it really does. Like you said, it really into that classic sort of idea of what movies were like.
0: Yeah. You can dismiss it as square or cheesy, but that misses the point that it is, it's exactly what it wants to be. Right. You sort of can't take a run at it this, that, that way, because it's just, it it sort of has all that stuff built in. It is, it's earnest. It's, right. it's pure.
1: I wonder if there is an element of that return. Cause you know, I, I was watching, I, I was in Los Angeles recently and I went to um, Tarantino theater, the new Beverly all about Eve was playing. And you know, it's been a, a while since I watched a movie from the 50s, like an American 50s movie. And um, it's, I mean, it's it's fab- It's not some crazy filmmaking as far as like visuals go, right? It's just the 50s, just coverage. But it's still well-framed. The costumes are great. The dialogue is like firing at 100. The performances are amazing. But it's a little bit over the top. It's a little bit like no one speaks like that. Like we're, as people, we're not that witty or quick.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And they all have that mid-Atlantic thing going on still, like that formalized version of speech that went out with the method.
1: Yeah. And it's just like, it's all a bit elevated. all lives above, but it was also fun. It was fun to do that for a while. It was fun to just watch something that was characters and story and wasn't like, you know, I wasn't thinking to myself, like, oh, would a theater actress say that or would this person do that? It was nice to just like be above it a little bit. And so I wonder you know, if there's a little bit of that, if any of that's returning or if there's a, a moment coming up in our future where filmmaking become, that becomes a bit more of a thing where there is that sort of, instead of everyone trying to distill it and find the most realist, rawest version of stuff, if there's a world where we kind of go, and we want to kind of like sit up here a little bit. We want to sit just a little bit above what we actually are experiencing, you know? And I, I think I, I watched uh, like yesterday, was kind of like that. I know it's a bit older, but um, you know, like even Coda, the, the movie that everyone's talking about, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just like, it's just, and it just sits up there a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, it's this new rush towards elevated everything, right? Elevated horror, elevated comedy, elevated drama. It's just a, right. it's just, a catch-all term for this is better than I thought it was going to be. And I'm (laughs) kind of weirded out by that. It's like you're coming in with an expectation that a genre picture is just going to be, you know, forgettable or disposable. And then someone like Ari Aster comes in and makes hereditary, which is, Uh I mean, it's a pretty simple possession story, except that that's not what it's doing. And he does it in this serious way where you can sort of feel the air moving and and there's more room tone and scenes and it's quieter and stiller Um, and it's in a, in a weird way that's embraced as being about something, you know, like how everything's Uh about trauma. Now it's, it's always been about trauma. It's just that now that it's part of the text instead of the subtext, Uh it's respectable, but the best ones are the ones that are respectable in spite of being a little cheap and a little, a little grotty, because those are the Uh ones that feel more like life. But I mean, I was going to say, um, usually the podcast wraps up by me asking the guest what of, A given film they've borrowed or lifted, but what you were saying about um, uh, uh, levels of like levels of detail and levels of of, um, stylization or disconnect, "Learn to Swim" has like it's a very formal film that also allows through the structure. And again, I don't want to spoil too much about the way it plays, but the 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 way it uses time periods to reflect back and forth on the character's evolution or lack of evolution and and growth, Mm. that, you know, you could say that that's an elevated storytelling technique, but it's just a good storytelling technique. I don't know that that it's elevated. It's just good.
1: I guess with with a lot of my films, I really, you know, Ghost has, when I think about Ghost, there's definitely a lot of parallels between probably what's happening in that film, what happens in Learn to Swim in weird ways. But I feel like, I always I always think about the feeling and the, that someone is supposed to have viewing it, viewing the project, whether it was it was learn to swim or some of the shorts I did. I'm always like, what do we, what do I want someone to feel? So I'm not always tied up into like I do want it to make sense. I don't want to just do do things to like just to do them, but it's like what do you feel when we go from this scene to that scene or this moment to this moment or when you're with this person in that? And that's always the intention. Um, And I, I, you know, a learning song plays like, plays like an album more than it does, I think sometimes like a a traditional, like linear story. It feels like something you put on and you just sort of like soak into. And I'm okay with that. I, 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 I enjoy taking that sort of like journey um, with a person or with an artist, as long as they're consistent and truthful about what it is that they're trying to do, you know? Um, And so, you know, like watching a movie like Ghost, it never stops. And that's what I mean, going back to like where it could fall apart, it never stops doing what it was, what it set out to do in the beginning. That mood, that tone that it sets, it just like carries that through. And even when it should like fall off and become something completely different and say, like, no, this is where we are and kind of just carries you through. And I love that about it. And I think that's something that um, I, I want to continue to carry through my work and And obviously like the themes of of death and loss and, well, <laughs> and fear, um, guilt, all those things will continue to, to to permeate the work that I do, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, that never goes out of style, does it? I mean, there's always... Yeah.
1: It's, all, it's just, you know, when you live in a highly religious household, I think you always kind of um, have those things. You, you either, like, lean into it or you you question it constantly. You sort of have this... Um, I, I, like, had a bad conversation with my aunt once. You know, I, I told... We were at dinner, and I I said... um, She was asking me if I was going to come to church with her, and I was like, no, you know, I got to... I got to do something tomorrow. Say, what do you got to do? And you know, I had to go watch football. That's what I had to, do, you know. And um, she's like, "You're not a believer, you know. You're, you're, and something And I said, "Not so much. That I don't believe in God. It's just that we don't have a great relationship, you know."
0: Um, <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I fall back on the Dan Aykroyd line from Ghostbusters. Like, do you believe in God? Yeah. Never met him. Yeah. <laughs> Complicated relationship is really good.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just complicated, um, and so we just yeah, that's got that's it, it's it's a constant, it's a constant question and constant finding it. You know, I don't know if you're ever supposed to, but you know, this is part of that process. Is, is creating things in search of it.
0: You know. My thanks to Tyrone Tommy, whose moody, moving first feature, "Learn to Swim," opens in theaters in Toronto and Vancouver this Friday, March 25th, before rolling out across the rest of the country. Thanks also to Bonnie Smith. She knows what she did. You can find Tyrone on Twitter at Tyrone Tommy, all one word, and you can find Ghost on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Paramount Plus in Canada and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. I am once again reminding you that I've made the first year of the show available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash SEMCAST. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else and are pretty good at payhip.com slash SEMCAST. Our theme song is By the Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.